0: My name is Gino Allison, and I want to welcome you all here to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who is a guest today, first-time guest. So glad to have you with us. You could be anywhere in the world right now, uh, but you chose to come and worship with us here, and we're very grateful for that. Also, welcome to anybody who is listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, if if the trees don't give it away... Uh, we're we're in the thick of Christmas season, right? Uh, And some of you have already begun your travel plans and your meal planning and your shopping and maybe you've hung up lights and trees and all that sort of stuff. And that is a sure sign that we are in the midst of the Christmas season, which for us in the Christian tradition is really, really important because we also find ourselves in the midst of what we call the advent season. So advent is among us. Technically this is the second week of the advent season, and advent simply means the arrival is a season observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of expectant waiting and the preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. And during advent we have three important postures where thankful. We are preparing for Christ's second coming, and we're also celebrating. This is a festive time. This isn't a time for mourning, but it's a time of celebration because we know that Christ's presence, the Spirit of God, is among us here today. And I'll just tell you, as a young preacher... I used to dread the holiday season, not because I didn't like the holidays, but because I'd have to preach Christmas messages, right? And I would wonder how can I use these same text every every year and make it fresh? I used to dread it, but but now as a as a more seasoned preacher, I'd love preaching during the Advent season because, I one, I just love to tell this story. Two, I've come to grips that this is the living word, and each and every year I see something in these pages, in this faithful story that I didn't see last time, and I just love to tell the story because this story so grounds us in the meaning the essence of this season, and as the old folks used to say, Jesus is the reason for the season. This story tells us that. If you ever thought the gifts and the turkeys and the traveling and the families and the festivities and the snow and the light was the center of this holiday, this story proves you wrong and draws us back to what? Jesus at the center of it all. And so during this holiday, we get to look at a particular chunk of God's big story, and when I say God's big story, I mean the story of God establishing in the world both his kingdom and us, his people. And when we look at God's big story, the first part, which is contained in scripture, we see that Jesus is the main character of this story. And particularly at Christmas time, particularly for us during Advent, we look at the Christmas story. And we zoom in on the part of God's big story that particularly deals with Jesus, the hope of the world. Jesus, God's rescue plan for fallen, broken, sinful humanity. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us, God incarnate, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, Jesus who has come to pay for the sins of the world and not just pay for the sins of the world but to show us how to live this life at the center of this story is jesus the son of god and when we look at god's big story particularly the part about jesus coming to earth for some of us it will inform us because some of us have never heard the story and it will remind others of us those of us who our year has robbed us of the significance of these words and this story And the truth surrounding the story will serve as a faithful reminder to us that God has always been at work. Let me say it again. It will remind some of us, inform others of us, that throughout the course of human history, God has what? Always been at work. Working in creation. He was even at work during the fall of mankind. He was at work during the exodus of his people, the prophets, the birth, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, the establishment of his church. And even now, the truth is, God has always been up to something. And that's what we have framed for us in God's big story. But God's big story also is comprised of what I call God's little stories, Right? And God's little stories uh, include stories like yours and mine. When I look back over my life and I think things over, I can see the hand of God working in my life all along the way. The fact that I'm standing here today is a testament to the fact that even when I was a little boy, God was working on me. And all the people who had to say yes to God and be along my path to prepare me to be here is a sure sign That God has been working in the little story of my life and somehow my little story is supposed to contribute to God's big story and I'm not special because God has been also working in your little stories imagine all the people who had to say yes to God and how the stars had to wonderfully align for you to be in this church on a Sunday morning some of you that seemed like the natural course of your life others it's no short of a miracle that you're here in a Christian church On Sunday morning, God's little stories reminds us that God has always been up to something and that God is perfectly specialized in making a way where there seems to be no way. And that truth is most evident in this wonderful Christmas story. And because of that, I have the privilege of beginning a brand new series that I'm simply calling A Way in a manger a way in a manger and as we focus on this beautiful story this beautiful true story we see how God chose to make a way in an unlikely scenario with an unlikely savior coming through unlikely means and that should spur us to thinking that God can do the same in our lives this Christmas story demonstrates that God can do fascinating things. And the goal of this story is to help us to be filled with awe and wonder again as we listen to and dissect and process the greatest story that has ever been told. As we examine and wrestle with all the fine details of this story, my prayer is that we would be struck with awe and wonder again, some of you for the first time as you engage this story. I think another goal of this story, as I see it, is to help inform and remind you that God, uh, that the same God is also at work in your life. Let me say that again. This story, as you see God working all these fine details of this story to make his purposes come true, I want you to also know that this same God with the same power, with the same willful intention, is also working in your life as well. And I want to begin this series this morning with a message that I'm simply calling God Will make a way. God will make a way. And I don't know who here, who's here today that needs to, to hear this today, but I imagine in a crowd this size, there's somebody here that's in pain. There's somebody here that's dealing with a broken heart. Somebody here whose kids are acting fool, or whose spouse won't cooperate, or somebody who here who has more months than money and can't quite figure out how things Will come together. I'm here to tell you this morning that God can and will make a way. I don't know who might be here today that might feel dreadfully unimportant in the grand scheme. You might feel like a nobody. You might feel forgotten by your family, forgotten by your friends, and more importantly, forgotten by God. And I want you to know today that at the end of this message, what I want you to know is that God can and will make a way. And he does use the life of seeming nobodies to do fantastic things. And that truth is not more evident than in this Christmas story. I want to look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Their story is contained in Luke chapter 1. Would you meet me in Luke chapter 1 this morning as we begin this series? Uh, There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those Bibles uh, as we follow along today. You can also feel free to um, engage with the text through your mobile device or your your tablet or your phone. We'll also be projecting the words on the screens uh, as we go along here. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 5. While you find that, let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I thank you for the story. Thank you. I pray, Father, that you would use this story today to speak to us. That heaven would literally come down, your presence would literally come down and arrest us in ways that we need to be arrested. For those who need comfort this morning, would you bring comfort? For those of us who need to be challenged this morning, would you, be, would you bring challenge? For those of us who feel insignificant and unimportant, Father, will you validate who we are in you as we engage your story? Father, for those of us who are struggling in, 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 in the darkness today, Father, I pray that you would bring your hope and your light. Uh, May we see this text with fresh eyes and sit at your table and feast on whatever you serve us today. Would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak? Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1, we'll start at verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying, and while Zachariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zachariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, but the angel said, "Don't be afraid, Zachariah, God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord." He must never touch wine or alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Verse 16. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I am an old man now and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be be fulfilled in the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. We'll skip down to verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed, there's no one in all of your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John instantly Zechariah could speak again and he began praising God all fell upon the whole neighborhood and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked what will this child turn out to be for the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way well this is one of my favorite segments of the Christmas story and to me it's a it's a fascinating story and it is tempting when we lean toward the Christmas story to skip over these stories and go right to Mary and Joseph, go right to the baby in the manger. But how many of you know that to skip over these misses some major points that God wants to drive home? Uh, to skip over this faithful story of this faithful man, and this faithful woman who would give birth to a faithful son, who would prepare the way for Jesus to come, robs us of some of the richness of this Christmas story. I don't know about you, but when I look at the Christmas story, when I look at the stories of the Bible, I don't really relate well to Jesus. I don't see myself in him, right? I look up to him. But when I look at this story, I can see myself in Zachariah and Elizabeth. I can relate to them. I look at an average Joe and an average Jane, and I see what Faithfulness qualifies us for. I see that God isn't looking for impressive men and women. God isn't looking at the things and qualities that the world looks at. He looks at just average Joes and Janes. And I don't mean to insult you by saying that, but most of you are just average. There's nothing wrong with being average. And I look in the mirror, I say, God, if God can work with Zachariah and Elizabeth, he can work with, surely he can work with me. Do something special with them? Surely he can do something special with me. The fascinating story. I'm drawn to this in ways that I'm not drawn to other texts. It's an eternal example of how God works and maneuvers with his servants. And it's a fitting, fitting example of how God will make a way. There's five observations that I want to draw out this morning, particularly as I make the case that God will make a way. Um, and so it's not just contained to this story, but I want you to see how God is also working and how God could also work in your own stories, particularly wherever you are right now. Five observations. I'll begin with this one. The first is that God can work in the dark. God can work in the dark. He will work in the dark. He often does work in the the dark, And again, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but God does some of his best work in the dark. And we're tempted when we're surrounded by darkness to bring God down to our level because the first thing we do when we need to work is we go in and turn a light on, right? I don't know about you, but when the first thing I do when I go into my office, I don't like it too bright, so I don't turn on the, you know, the fluorescent lights. I go and turn on my lamps because I need to see my way around. I don't work real good in the dark. I need to see my computer. I need to see my phone. I need to see my stuff. So some of us, when we're shrouded in darkness and we can't see which way is up, we assume that God can't work when the lights are out. Just because it's dark from my vantage point that maybe God has just decided to chill out and hang out until the lights come on. No, 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 no. God does his best work. His best work. In the dog, you said, preacher. What does darkness have to do with this text? I'm glad you asked. Verse five: When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zachariah. Luke is setting the stage for us. He's giving us helpful context, and that context for us is when Herod was king. Now, the original audience that this was written to lived in this context, understood what was going on in the news and in the day and with the government, and all they needed to know was Herod was king during this, and that would have set the stage for them right away. It would have provided context. Like if somebody said during the Depression and went into talking to his story, you would, you, you would have some context because you understand what was happening around that time. Or during the Nixon administration, or during the Trump administration, some of us would go, okay, those were okay. now I know what's happening. I, I have something, a box to contain this story. And so when Herod was king of Judea, is a signal that these were not good times because, I don't know how to put this nicely, Herod was a whole fool. My sister used that expression because some people having bouts of foolishness. Uh, they're having laps good, of good judgment. But when somebody's really out there, my sister said, that boy is a whole fool. There's no hope for him, right? And Herod is a, is a first-class clown of a king. He's not a leader He's just in charge. He's insecure. He's vindictive. He's brutal. He's immature. He's childish. And he crushes with his power. He, he uses his influence and his might and the throne to get at his own purposes and for his own benefit. One historian said, as long as Herod lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. He was a terrible king. And so this would have been, to the people living at that time, the darkest and most evil days that folks at the time would have known when Herod was king. And some of you might look around at the government we have right now. And the things that are happening in the world and you might say man these are some dark dark times but it wasn't just dark in the world around them it was dark in their own personal life verse 6 tells us Zechariah and elizabeth were righteous in god's eyes careful to obey the lord's commandments and regulations but they had no children because elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very And so in their personal life, things were dark. In the ancient world, if you didn't have children, it was perceived to be a sign uh, that you had angered God and that God wasn't unhappy with you. And so people, particularly women who didn't have children, men who didn't have sons, uh, it was a shameful condition. It was a shameful state, not to mention as you grew old, there was nobody to take care of you. There was nobody to carry on the family name. There was nobody to, you know, do the things that parents would expect of their children. So it's a personally dark time. And so this matters in this story, but especially matters to us because some of you are living in the darkness that is not of your own cho- choosing. Darkness in the world with racial hate. All the stuff going on in the political realm. Folks coming up missing, right? People just being kidnapped, right? Kids being abused. It's like... This is a dark time. And some of you are living in personal darkness. Maybe your vocational stability is being threatened. Maybe your relational standing with your children or maybe with your spouse. Or maybe you're struggling with your singleness. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe financially you don't know which way is up or how you're going to provide or how you're going to uh, make away. So some of us are living in the darkness and we can't quite see God working in fact we're quite sure that he's not working and if he's working you're absolutely certain that he's working against you and not for you but if the story illustrates anything if there's any hope to grab onto is that God is still working in the dark God is working in the dark Second thing I see in this story is that God is in control. God is in control. Now, I'll admit that that at times is both comforting and maddening all at the same time. God is in control can be comforting and maddening depending on the day, depending on the circumstance. Because sometimes I'm thinking, God, if you're in control, if you're actually running this, this is a mess. We need to get somebody else. I know that seems very un- irreverent, but I feel like I have permission to be honest with you today. Yeah. God, if you're running this, if you're orchestrating this, you don't, you don't seem qualified to run things. And so when I hear God is in control, I, I, there's some tension with this statement but it's true it's dark how well, I many you know just because I can't see doesn't mean that God can't see just because I can't see how to get some things done in this darkness doesn't mean that God is paralyzed as well we see that God is in control how do you know verse 8 one day Zachariah was serving God in the temple he was just doing his priestly thing he was on order, uh, was on duty that week As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is important because Zechariah was a priest. He regularly went to the temple. But on this particular time he went to the temple, he was chosen by Lot to actually go into the temple and to burn uh, burn the incense. Now, this is important because they they cast lots, So some of us say rolled dice or drew straws. In order to figure out which of the priests would go in and do this really important duty right this this important duty is important significant for Zechariah because while he was in there he had this visitation from this angel right so it's significant that he was chosen right and so some of us when we think about dice or drawing straws to see who does something we think about chance we we think about we think about luck right well, in the ancient world, they believed, particularly these priests, knew that the divine was, had his hands on those dice. The, the, God was somehow influencing whose straw was, you know, which die, as the die was cast. It was God influencing which way things would go. And so this is God's intervention. On top of that, there's one temple, but thousands of priests. Just one temple. But thousands of priests, one conservative estimate is something like 20,000 priests, right? So what are the odds? What are the odds that Zechariah would have his opportunity to go in? What are the odds that as the lots lots were cast, that Zechariah would pull the winning straw? And so given this truth that we now know, this is like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The chances of being selected in your lifetime to go into the temple and burn incense are rare, and many priests never, ever got the chance to go in. But in the midst of the darkness, God was at work in Zechariah's life. I was struck by this detail in a way that I, wasn't, that I hadn't been destruct, struck by it as I encountered this text in previous years. And I just thought about the fact that some of us are dealing with impossible situations. Impossible situations where there's virtually no chance of things turning around. In fact, the chances are pointing toward things getting worse. And some of us are wrestling with our identity, and some of us are having crises in every realm of our life, and, and the, the way things are going, the trajectory looks like it's going down. And for things to turn around would be an absolute long shot. And maybe God has promised you some things, or maybe words have been spoken over to you, and the circumstances of your life, and the odds of things happening, the odds of things turning around are slim to none, but we are reminded... That even in the dark, God is in control. And that God is pulling the strings. The third observation I see is that God answers prayer. While He works in the dark, while He's in control, God answers prayer. And much like that statement, God is in control, some of us get tense when you hear this sentence. Some of us are at odds with this statement because your personal experience doesn't seem to bear this out. You said, I prayed dozens of prayers, hundreds of prayers, thousands of prayers, and I have gotten no answer at all. How many of you you know that uh, uh, Christians kind of need training on prayer? Right, I don't know about you as a young young man and as an immature Christian. I just felt like prayer was just going to God, telling them what I want, just kind of like a child go up to Dad, "Hey, Dad, I want some juice. Hey, I want that toy. Hey, I want a Beyblade. Make that happen for me." And if your parents are particularly benevolent, they just kind of give it to you. And so you say, "Oh, that's a cool kind of system. Maybe I'll try that with God. Hey, God, I want this. Hey, God, I want that. Hey, crickets." Nothing. And so you might conclude that prayer doesn't work or that God does not answer prayer. When I look at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is actually teaching his disciples to pray, he says this to them When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need. Even before you ask him, he continues, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. Now, I'm struck that Jesus didn't say, hey, if you really want me to answer your prayer, you've got to be pretty, pretty, pretty please. you got to get on your knees just like so. you got to put some good mute mood music on in the background, and then I'll answer your prayer. When he's instructing us how to pray, he says, make sure you lead with this. God, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done. If you need me to unpack that a little bit, basically God is saying, when you pray, pray that my purposes will be fulfilled. Pray that in as much as it involves you, that my kingdom will come and that my will be done. And so this is my posture when I praise. It was just like rolling out my wish list and saying, God, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want that. It is like, Lord, I want all this stuff if, if this is your will. I want all this stuff if your will will be done and your kingdom will come through these requests. If not, Lord, feel free to just, Tell me now. And how I many of you know to, to posture yourself with thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If this coats or informs or if this is the undercurrent beneath your prayers, it, one, radically changes how you pray. It radically changes what you pray for. And it radically impacts your response to whatever answer you get. And so I go back to the point that I made. God always answers prayer. You said, preacher, that's just not true. Um, no is an answer. I go up to my mom and say, mom, can we have some candy? Mom just didn't even look at me. Just keep doing it. Well, maybe she didn't hear me. To go over to her other ear. Mom, can we have some candy? She didn't even look down. And as a young man, I thought, my mother didn't answer me. But as an older person with four kids who's always calling my name, always asking me for something, she gave me an answer. It was silent. But after five or six seconds, you get the picture. Just walk away. No candy's happening now. In the same way, God always answers prayer. He always answers prayer. Let's continue with the story. When well, Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Now, I used to think years ago that the angel was saying, God has answered your prayers for a son. Um, and I think some of the commentary writers and some of the scholars are actually torn on this. But the more I dig into this, um, the more I think that that's not exactly what's being said here. Um, in fact, as I researched this, the God-give-me-a-son prayer might have been a prayer that Zachariah played years ago. But he's, he's up in age right now, right? Some translations say, God has heard your prayer And your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Which suggests that the prayers that is being answered isn't necessarily like what we might naturally assume is that this barren couple with no kids, who desperately want kids, perhaps long ago, like their prayers have been answered for a son. But but something tells me that this prayer has had more to do with, like, God's kingdom coming than, like, give me a son again more context we're we're at a unique like like place in history here we've just left the old testament we've entered the new testament and there's been 400 years, some 400 years of silence where God hasn't spoken to the prophets. God hasn't spoke to anybody. And God's people for 400 years have gone without his voice, gone without his guidance, and, and the enemies of God, and the enemies of God's people have just had a field day as the people just wonder where is God. Now they're left with prophecies 400 years ago that the kingdom would come. And that God would establish his ruin and reign. And God would reestablish his people and take care of his people. And so the faithful men and women, particularly the priests like Zechariah, would pray almost daily, Lord, Lord, when will you come? When will you pierce this darkness? When will you speak to us again? When are you going to bring the hope? The wonderful counselor, the mighty God that the prophet spoke of, when is that coming? May that come rescue us establish your people again lord this this i believe is the prayer that has been answered it just so happens it just so happens that that prayer would be wrapped up in a savior it just so happens that all the little stories surrounding what would have to fall into place in order to make that happen would also begin to unfold at this particular moment and also you stands to reason that as Zachariah and Elizabeth, as young parents, prayed for John way back then. It wasn't time for the boy yet. It wasn't time for him yet. And so as they prayed on their knees, on those young knees, and said, Lord, give us, just, just give us one. Silence, nothing. And even in that silence, the Lord wasn't saying no. He was just saying not yet. And the way maker God, as he answers this prayer, as many would conclude late, with this boy John, he answered the prayers of millions of God's people. Set into motion a series of events that would surely begin to usher in the rule and reign of the coming Savior. God answers prayer. Said say, preacher, why are you saying that? Because some of you have stopped praying. You've stopped believing. You've done as the child does, folds his arms, crosses his arms, pouts his lips and says, well, if you won't give me what I asked for, I just won't talk to you. If you won't answer me, then what is the youth of me talking to you? Thought you said you'd give me the desires of my heart. I thought you said if we ask, we shall receive. But you forgot the according to my will. You forgot the heart posture of, Lord, may your kingdom come in as much as it involves me. The implications of which are, Lord, if there's anything I ask for that is not accordance with your will, just don't give it to me. If there's anything that I'm asking for that seems good, that seems right, but would end up being the noose around my neck or might cause an unhelpful diversion from your plans and your purposes, Lord, don't give it to me. Now, you don't need to tell the Lord that because he simply won't give it to you. (laughs) But, But the heart posture is what's important. The faith, hope, and trust that God will give us what we need, according to his plans, according to his purposes, God answers prayer. Sometimes it's just no. Sometimes it's not yet. Sometimes it's son, daughter, just trust me. That's not my best for you. I know she's fine. I know, I know you think you just got to have it. That's not my best for you. If you get that, it's going to tie you up. It's going to distract you. It's going to take your heart away. Just trust me. This is God. Right? But always answers prayer. It's dark. God's in control. It's dark. It's gloomy. But what we see is God's about to turn the lights on. He's about to turn the lights on with this answer prayer that's the third thing fourth thing is that god deals with our doubt god deals with our doubt now this is important because i've come to discover that doubt is really dangerous right it's super common but but it's really dangerous when we put this all together When we acknowledge our need to trust and rest in the goodness of God, rest in that God's in control, rest in the fact that God's plans are good and that God is up to something and that God will make a way according to his will and that he will establish his kingdom, doubt is dangerous. It'll eat our lunch. And I have to be careful how I speak about doubt because on the one hand, I want to always say that you serve a God that can handle your doubt. I don't know if you grew up like me, like we, we were sort of coached out of expressing our doubt. No, 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 don't, don't don't claim anything. No, my arm's broken. It's broken. Look, it's hanging off. I'm not claiming anything. I'm saying my arm's broke. I'm broke. Don't, don't say you're broke. Don't claim it. You, you don't, no, I, just, I don't have any money. They're about to shut my lights off. I'm I'm not claiming anything. I'm just saying, I checked my account. There's nothing in there. I owe them, actually. We were just sort of coached to just pretend to be okay. We were sort of just coached when we come across a curious passage of Scripture and say, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so as a youngster, we internalized that doubt was something that we had to just stuff and that you would disrupt God's fragile peace if you darkened his door with a question about your misunderstanding or if you wrestled with, you know, faith, or, or, right? And so I'm just careful to say, guess what? God's a big boy. He's pretty secure in his godness. He can handle our doubts. On the other hand, though, don't get too cozy with doubt because it will it's a robber it's a thief it can ruin the very things that you need in order to take god at his word and to trust him and that is faith and hope faith in things that you can't see yet because of the darkness hope in the certain future that will come about as spoken by god right he's a god that keeps his promises though it may seem delayed Though it's dark and you can't quite see it, hope says it's coming. He said it, it's coming, right? Doubt neutralizes both of those. Doubt chops both of those down. And here we see Zechariah, faithful priest, godly man, doubt. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, hey, that's cool and everything. I'm going to let you finish. But how can I be sure this will happen? Zach said, I'm an old man. And not to speak bad about Elizabeth, she no spring chicken either. So I don't know about this. Sounds good, but I I don't know about this. He's doubting. And God deals with our doubt because doubt can complicate our partnership with God's plan. I'll say that again. Doubt can complicate our partnership partnership with god's plan i mean you know the zeal and fervor which with with which you you, we live our lives particularly for god depends on the degree to which we trust and hope and have faith in god i say it again the fervor zeal and zest for which we lean into life particularly god's plan for us Heavily relies on the degree to which we trust God. We have faith in God. We hope in his word. We hope in his promise. We hope in his ability to do what he says he will do, no matter what the circumstances look like. And so there must be some mechanism that God has to deal with our doubt and the things that threaten to complicate our purpose. Our obedience, and sometimes God deals with our doubt gently, lovingly, by just providing more details, right? By just saying, okay, yeah, I can understand how you right. And when we're younger in our faith, the Lord is just surrounds us with all signs of signs, wonders, just strangers coming up to you, confirming the goodness of God. You see it everywhere. But as we get older and as we're expected to be strong in our faith. God doesn't always give us all those extra things, right? And sometimes when we stand in the face of God who's telling us something and we say, I don't know about that. I don't believe that God said, okay, you know better than this. We've been through this a couple of times and there is some like more, more, more forceful action taken in order to help us understand that doubt is something that is a danger to our, to our participation in God's plan This is what happens with Zechariah. Zechariah says, how can I be sure about this? I'm old. My wife's old. You're going to have to help me with this. Verse 19. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. Say, man, pull your phone out. Google me. I'm Gabriel. I'm a big deal. God wasn't messing around. Like he sent one of the big dogs to come talk to you. Trust me, dude. I'm the real deal. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Gabriel, Gabriel took that personally, didn't he? This seems like he's feeling a little bit about this, right? He's coming to represent God. Here's what Gabriel also knows. This is a high-stakes assignment. High-stakes assignment. Brother, Brother, 20,000 other priests didn't get chosen for this assignment. And you doubt me? We're having some back and forth right now? He said, this is a high-stakes assignment. I need you to know that the very presence of the Word of God is before you right now. And so you will not speak until you see this. If I were to paraphrase, the, 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 the angel said, well, well, just shut up and watch me work. Get somewhere and be quiet. And all you'll be able to do is watch the glorious unfolding of what I just spoke to you. And some of you need to wrestle with this particular point right now because it is your doubt that is eating your lunch. It is your doubt that's got you complacent. It's your doubt that's got you in the, on the sidelines. It's your doubt that got you coming to church once a month, withdrawing your resources. Withdrawing your energy toward the things of God, it is your doubt. You got comfortable with it. You've snuggled up with it. And the Lord says, "I've given some of you high stakes assignments." And he said, saying, "What are my high stakes assignment? I'm just a stay at home mom. That's the highest stakes assignment that I can even think of in this moment." Some of you, your doubt has got you just somewhere chilling, hanging out with your arms folded because you don't believe the promises of God. You don't believe that God can use somebody like you. You don't believe that God is in control and that he can work in the dark. And so you've resigned to do nothing or very little because of your doubt. And so I love that the angel takes this personally. I love that there's some punitive action here because it draws our eyes to the fact that this doubt is very important. I wonder how God might be dealing with your doubt this morning. Hmm? I wonder what, even as you hear this story and even as you wrestle with this truth right now, what, what might be being arrested within you right now? As you wrestle with the fact that it's your doubt, your lack of faith, which has turned into indifference toward the things of God, which has complicated and compromised your participation in his plan, God is dealing with your doubt. And I, I don't know about you, but I would rather God deal gently with me. I, I'd rather, I, you know, I'd rather see, you know, my man Zachary here getting in trouble and decide, you know, like, like when your you know, sister's getting in trouble, you say, you know, let me go clean my room. Me go double check my homework just to make sure, right? And I think this is to serve to us to say, man, listen, God, this doubt is serious. And no doubt, you can see the ways it's compromised God working in your life and your participation with His plan. Like God will always keep His in, right? But we partner with Him to get this thing right. And so He put Zechariah in timeout. So Zechariah, he, he can't speak, right? People are like, man, what's going on with him? He can't speak. But he come out, they start, sort of figure it out. And then Zechariah goes home. But he's go, just gone home having just been slapped on the wrist for doubting. And the implication as we walk through this story is that Zechariah goes home and he schedules a play date, a grown-up play date with his wife. We know because this isn't like an immaculate conception. Like they had to like get together, right? And so Zechariah... Says, "Let me go. <laughs> let me go participate." <laughs> That's in here, man. You got to read between the lines. It's in there. <laughs> because Elizabeth, she gets pregnant. Zachariah can't speak, but he communicated somehow that things need to be set into motion, and she gets pregnant, which brings me to my fifth and, and final point, and that is this. God will always come through. You know, you know, God would always come through. And so again, unless you have eyes to see it, this kind of rings out like God is in control. It can seem trite. It could seem like, well, that's what the preacher's supposed to say. This sort of rings out like God answers prayer, like it seems trite. It seems like what, right? But when we put this all together, This rings true when we say God always comes through. He always comes through. When his plans and his purposes, coupled with our participation in his plans and his purposes, when our heart posture is, Lord, I'm going to ask for a whole lot of things, but may your kingdom come and your will be done. May I ruthlessly... Deal with the doubt in my life and in my world so that I am a willing, you know, glad participant in your plans and purposes. Guess what? When when that's the position of our heart, when we've been seasoned in that way, we see through eyes of faith that God always comes through. Verse 24. Soon after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months... She says, How kind of the Lord! How kind the Lord is! He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Verse 65 awe fell upon the whole neighborhood. The whole neighborhood gets to behold the goodness of God, which probably sets into motion. Other stirrings of faith, what might also encourage more participation in the plans of God in their own individual life. Verse 65, all fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. God came through. He did what he said. But he also answered their prayer. That God's kingdom would come. And whether you believe that they were praying for a son or that that God's kingdom would come and that God would break through the darkness or both. They both were faithfully answered in the birth of John the Baptist. God will always come through. And I feel like I need to say for somebody that God coming through oftentimes means him saying no to you. God's love for you, his care for you, his concern, oftentimes materializes itself in the form of a no, right? In the form of a not yet. In the form of something that you didn't pray for, but like that you needed, like this is God coming through for you. And some of us have been miseducated about what it means to serve a generous God. Because some preachers stood up and told you, if you can just claim it, name it, you can claim it. If you can blab it, you can grab it. <laughs> and other unhelpful rhymes, bad theology, that have totally disrupted a healthy understanding of what it means to in your heart toward God's will and to, and to watch him work with the absence of doubt. God will make a way. It may not be the way that you will choose or the way that you will want. And and this is just one piece of the puzzle. God is doing this all over the place so that Jesus can come and do what he's supposed to do. The same power, the same intentionality, the same care and white-gloved concern for the fine details of John's life is the same meticulous care and detail that God is working out in your life in the midst of the darkness. Same stuff he's working out in your children's life in the midst of the darkness. Though you cannot see but faith, hope, the absence of doubt helps us to understand that God is in control. He works in the dark he answers faithful prayers. He deals with our doubt, and ultimately, He will always, always come through. Worship team, you can come. Who needs to hear this this morning? Some of you, like all of those points, just wrestled me down to the ground in the most glorious way. Hallelujah. Others of you would be fine in one area or a couple areas, just one area. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's your prayer life, right? Maybe it's being consumed in darkness and you can't see way up. Like, how are you supposed to respond to this? That's between you and the Lord. But the Lord has set the table. He knew who would be here. He knew who would be listening to the podcast, right? And so get what you came for today. Let this word do its work. Posture your hearts to not just receive today, but to respond. And my prayer is that as we worship God today, um, that he would make it clear to us what we're supposed to do. God will make a way. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you're a way maker. Thank you that you're a promise keeper. Thank you that you're a light in the darkness and that you're working even though we can't see. We invite your Holy Spirit into this place today. To continue the work, continue what you started. Uh, would you arrest and break the back of doubt in your people today? For those of us who are surrounded by darkness, just it's like a heavy blanket on you today. You came in here with all manners of gears, all manners of worries. Some of you are in grief, some of you are in depression. Some of you you feel your faith is slipping away. Lord, would you come? Come, Holy Spirit. And as we worship you, may these songs minister to you, but also may they minister to us. May these truths season us, tenderize us, so that we might participate in your plan and be available to you. Release the gift of faith today, Father, so that we can trust you again, that we can hope again. God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen.